bow our heads for just a moment of silent prayer. Amen. The scripture that Paul just read is in a context that's a little bit sad because the context is there in Hebrews chapter 3. And what Paul is talking about in Hebrews chapter 3 is the fact that there were a lot of people who left Egypt on the way to the promised land, but the majority of them never made it to the promised land. How many think that's really, really sad? And the ones who did make it to the promised land were the ones that every time a problem came along, rather than looking at the problem, they looked at God's promise. And you know that when they left the promise, the slavery in Egypt, they were all excited. Look what God has done. We are on our way to the promised land. But as they got on the way and things got difficult, they began to doubt. But notice this text again. I want you to look at it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ. How many want to be a partaker of Christ? How do you remain a partaker of Christ? For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And you remember when they arrived at the promised land, there was Caleb and Joshua. And uh, the other ten spies says, the people there are too big, we're too weak, we can never make it. But Caleb and Joshua kept doing what it says here in verse 14. They kept saying they had the same confidence at the end that they had at the beginning. God can still do what God says He can do. Amen? How many of you remember the day that you were baptized? Was that a good day? What did you know the day that you were baptized? I hope one of the things that you know, at least the people who are baptized when I'm around, I quote to them that favorite scripture of mine, a quote from Ellen White that says, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, then no matter how sinful your past life may have been for Christ's sake, you are accounted righteous because Jesus' character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God as though you had never sinned. How many have ever heard me say that before? How many have got it memorized yet? Anybody got it memorized? Well, I'm going to say it a whole bunch more times. But if you know that you're standing before God as though you'd never sinned, isn't that what baptism represents? Being washed clean, standing before God as though you'd never sinned. Let's read verse 14 again. For we're made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, how many of you know that there are beings who haven't done that? The most outstanding and the saddest individual was a a fellow whose name at one time was Lucifer. How many have ever heard of him? Lucifer has to do with light. Uh, Lumens, how many measure of lights? Anyway, it comes from that. And uh, the Bible says that he was created how? Does anybody remember what the Bible says? He was created perfect. He was the highest of all the angels. He was the closest to God. And yet... He did not continue. He, 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 he kept thinking about what he didn't have rather than thinking about what he did have. And what he did have was a whole lot better than what he wanted. But because he focused on the negative rather than on the positive, just the thinking, the thinking about the negative turned the perfect angel into the devil. How does it make you think? You need to put your, your mind on good things and keep it there. Amen? Now, one summer... In fact, it was the summer I met my wife. I had 10 young people that I was teaching how to go door-to-door, knock on doors, and 
and sell people books about the Bible and sell Bibles and things like this. And I was working with this young man one day, and we had our suits on, like I have a suit on now. So we looked like a couple of preachers, though we were both pretty young. I think he was 17 and I was 20. That was it. And we went and we knocked on this lady's door, and she came to the door, and we wondered if we should go in. There was a baby there, but she came to the door in her swimming suit, two-piece swimming suit. And we were a little nervous, but we thought if any place needs this, this does. They, they need what we have. So she was interested. She let us in, and we opened our case, and we started showing her these books, and she had this little girl in there, and the little girl was interested, and pretty soon we had this big old plastic thing with pictures of all the books, and we had the books out on the floor, and the telephone rang. And this was back before cordless phones. When the phone rang, you had to go where the phone was because you could not take the phone with you. How many think that's kind of foreign now? How many can remember that? How many old enough remember? And there was only one phone in every house, and so she went in the other room, and, and we couldn't see her anymore, but we could hear her talking. And apparently, obviously, she forgot that we were there. And she talked and talked and talked and talked. For a half an hour, she talked. And I could tell by what she was saying that she had forgotten we were there because we were there in our suits. We had Bible stuff on the floor because she was talking about, uh, to her girlfriend about her husband being a truck driver and the boyfriends that she'd had in high school were coming over and staying all night there while her husband was away driving the truck. And we were embarrassed. And we kept thinking we ought to pack up our books and get out of here. But we saw that little girl, and she was still in the living room, and she was looking at the books and stuff. And we thought, if any house needs the Bible, this one does. Amen? Amen. Finally, she got done talking on the phone, and she started doing something in the kitchen. We didn't know whether we should make noise or not. But finally, she wandered into the living room where we were and saw these two preacher-looking guys there with their Bible storybooks laying on the floor. And she turned red because she knew that we had heard her talking. And she said, she she tried to get her composure, and she says, well... I may not be all that I'm supposed to be, but at least I know I'm saved. And I thought, who told her that? And it turned me against that doctrine for a long time. I thought, it's dangerous to know that you are saved because people who know that they are saved think, now I can do anything I want. But I have come back around to that doctrine, and you know the text because I've given you that one before. It's in 1 John 3, 3, and it says, Every man that has his hope in him does what? Have you got that memorized yet? How many don't know what the next word is? Every man that has his hope in him purifies himself. And I thought, well, if having hope in you purifies you, then that's my job to put hope in people. How many believe that? How many have heard me preach that before? Now, I've had people, when I preach the way I preach, the way I have been preaching here, wonder, well, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And I says, well, it would be nice, but it's also dangerous because that's what that lady believed. So I did a study on it, and I want to show you what I came up with. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 10. And I have some bad news And if I hurry, I can get to the good news before 12 o'clock. But how many would just as soon hear the bad news first and then finish up with the good news? All right, I'm going to show you the bad news. This is found in Hebrews chapter 10, and look in verse 26. This is one of those texts in the Bible that's a scary text, especially if you don't read the context and understand what it means, because if it, it means what it looks like it means, 
we're all lost. Because here's what it says. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire ignition which shall destroy the adversary. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment. Now I'm going to stop right there and look at that. Now, if Hebrews verse 10 verse 26 means what it looks like it means, would King David be saved? He knew it was wrong to do what he did. And yet we understand, especially when we read Psalms 51, that David repented, was sorry, and God forgave him. How many of you knew that Peter knew it was wrong to curse and swear and to lie? Jesus told him before the rooster crows crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Peter knew it was wrong. And yet in the extremity of the moment, he told a lie. I've never known him. And he told the lie and breaking the other commandments says, don't take the name of the Lord that God invade. He did that. So if willful sin, I mean, is what we think it is, you know better and you do it anyway. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of truth, if you know better and you do it anyway, according to Hebrews 10, 26, there's no more sacrifice for sin. But from other things that we know in the Bible, we know that that cannot be the correct definition of that sin. Are you with me? Because if it were, David was lost, Peter was lost, all the disciples were lost, you and I are lost. And so one of the things you do when you find a text like this that that really looks scary and you don't understand it, the thing to do is read the context over and over and over. And so I read chapter 10 over and over and over. And let me show you what I discovered about chapter 10. I've already read verse 26. I've read 27. I've read 28. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then when you get to verse 29, notice it says, Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy... And then there's a comma in the King James, and then it says who. And the word who in verse 29 is referring back to the willful sinner back in verse 26. How many can see that? It's talking about the willful sinner. It tells how awful it is. And then when you get to the word who, the, next, the rest of verse 29 tells what the who did in order to commit the willful sin. And notice what it says. Who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, who hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite to the Spirit of grace. Now, when you read these three things that the willful sinner did, it looks to me like willful sin is committed by someone like Lucifer who's close to God and knows God. Because look at the phrase again. Number one, he's trodden underfoot the Son of God. This is someone who was close to God like Lucifer was, like Judas was, and was close enough to God that he could turn and step on him. The second thing says, has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was what? sanctified. And if you do a a study on the word sanctified, that is what happens to a person after they're justified. And I've already told you what justified means. When you accept, I'm going to say it again so you can memorize it. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, God accepts you just as though you had never sinned, justified. And so sanctification is what happens to a person when they rejoice over their justification. How many have been rejoicing over your justification? I have discovered that when I'm rejoicing the fact that He justifies me, it causes me to feel gratitude toward God. It causes me to want to obey Him. How many are with me so far on this? All right? And so I'm believing that the person who commits willful sin is just not knowing something, knowing better, because it says up here in verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and we often think what the knowledge of the truth is, you know what's right and wrong. 
But it's possible to know what's right and wrong and not have a knowledge of the truth because the knowledge of the truth has to do what Jesus has done to save us and that's where truth is. And then right and wrong comes out of that. But knowledge of the truth is to recognize what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. And most of the Jews during Jesus' day didn't understand because they had seen the lambs sacrificed day after day after day after day. And then when Jesus was crucified... I think the thief on the cross recognized that's why we killed all those lambs. And when you go to Acts chapter 6, it says there was a whole bunch of the priests who became obedient to the faith. And that puts a smile on my face because those priests were the ones who were involved day after day sacrificing the lambs. And then they were there and they watched Jesus die. And then they saw what the disciples did. And we studied that in the Sabbath school lesson this morning. And all of a sudden, at least there were some of the priests who said, that's why we sacrificed all those lambs, because God was trying to prepare us to recognize that the Messiah would be the lamb that was sacrificed. And John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so understanding the truth is understanding the plan of salvation. And you don't really understand the plan of salvation until you experience because salvation is something that you can know the theory of without knowing the experience. But God wants us to know the theory and the experience. Amen? Are you with me? So I believe that the people who commit willful sin are people who have understood the plan of salvation because when you get down to verse 29, it says they've counted the blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified, an unholy thing. And at one time they counted it as holy. In fact, the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified is the most holy thing that there, that there is because it's Jesus' own blood and it cleanses us from sin. Amen? And so apparently it is possible for Christians to do what Lucifer did, to be so close to God that you know everything about God. At least Lucifer did, didn't he? And then he, because he allowed his mind to be discontented and think that he wasn't being treated fair. He, he fed on that. He thought on that until finally he came to the place that he rejected all the good things that God had given him before. Now, how many of you know that you can, once you've had the measles, the, the idea of getting the measles again is, is very rare. Am I right? Now, I don't know if you can or not. Maybe you can get a different strain. But once you've had some diseases... Then when that disease comes again, your body is all ready to fight it. And it's good that we can become immune to bad things. How many agree with me? But how many also recognize that what it's talking about here is that you can have God. And that if you reject Him, the next time He comes, you become immune to Him. How many know that you can become immune to the Holy Spirit? And that's what the last phrase here has done despite to the Spirit of grace. Now, when there's something in the Bible that is extremely important, you will discover that it's usually talked about twice in the same book by the same writer. And this subject is, go back to Hebrews chapter 6. And in Hebrews chapter 6, you start in verse 1, 2, and 3, and it's talking about growing in grace. When you come to Jesus, you're a a baby. The Bible says you must be born again. But also Paul talks about that you grow, you receive the pure word of God, the milk of the word, and you begin to grow, and then you're, you get ready for more things, and you grow in grace. But what Hebrews chapter 6 is talking about, the first three verses there, by the time you get to verse 3, and says, and we will do this if God permit. But when you get to verse 4, it's talking what happens if you're growing in grace, and you have known Jesus, and then you come to a place where you don't want to grow anymore. How many of you know that when you stop growing, you start to die? Am I right? For notice what it says in verse 4. 
And this is the same thing it's talking about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 29. Look what it says. If this wasn't here, dear people, I would not read it to you. I wouldn't talk about this because how many recognize what I'm talking about today is scary stuff. It is possible. If you neglect your relationship with Jesus Christ, you can eventually, if you stay away from and resist the Holy Spirit long enough, you can finally come to the place where you kill that which in you has the capacity to respond to God. Because I believe this. I've had people who thought they committed the unpardonable sin, and I says, does it bother you? Do you worry about it? And they say, yeah, it does. And I says, then you haven't committed it. Because what the unpardonable sin is coming to the place where you no longer care. And the devil came to the place where he didn't care. Now, I'm going to read these verses simply because they're in the Bible, but I want you to know I do not enjoy reading these verses. How many got that? There's some things in the Bible I don't like to talk about, but it's there and I have to. It's warnings. Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened... Does that sound like a person who knows God? Without God, you have no light. They're once enlightened. Point number two, they have tasted the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? Eternal life. And they have had eternal life in them. They have been partakers of Christ. Once enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift and were what? Made partakers of what? The Holy Ghost. They have had God's Holy Spirit in them. Did Lucifer have the Spirit in him? Yes, he did. Verse 5. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Does this sound like a person who really knows Jesus? They have known him. But you see, it is possible, as I said, to do what Lucifer did, to do what the people who came out of Egypt did. You can take your mind off of God. You can take your mind off of God's promises. You can look at all the difficulties and all the hardships and all the things that you think aren't fair. How many know that I don't like the the doctrine of fairness? How many know I don't like that? I'm not interested in fairness at all. I'm interested in mercy. And you see, the thing that started sin is that Lucifer didn't think he was being treated fair. How many know that? And you hear it in politics now. How many hear it in politics? Got to be fair. And I want to say, all I want is God's mercy. Amen? And if you have God's mercy, it doesn't make any difference how other people treat you. It's going to be okay. Amen? And you see what what Lucifer should have done when he was all upset. He thought, it's going to be okay. And this is one of the thoughts that helps me to this day. Something bad happens, but it's going to be okay. Amen? How many want to raise your hand and say, I know that if I stay with God, it's going to be okay. It might not be okay for a while, but it's going to be okay in the end. Amen? How many like that? How many are going to carry that around with you? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and it's going to be okay. What you need, it's going to be added to you. Not maybe when you want it, but when you need it, it's going to be there. Amen? All right. Let me finish. I've finished here. Verse 6. If they fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to open shame. How many want to cry when you read this? So it is possible. Now that lady I talked about, I don't know if she had done that because I have read stories in the Bible that talk about people who've done that and done more and yet there's still something in them that God can reach. You go back in the Old Testament in the book of... Second Chronicles chapter 33, it talks about a fellow whose name was Manasseh. And his dad was one of the good kings, Hezekiah a good king. 
But Manasseh was one of these kids who made up his mind, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what my dad did. And when Manasseh became king, he began to undo all the good his dad did. He turned the temple in Jerusalem into a house of prostitution. He invited people to come in and do seances and communicate with, with devils and stuff. And you think, surely this guy has committed the impardonable sin. But later in life, the Bible says that God sent the Syrians, they captured Manasseh, they took him back to their capital city, and they tortured him there. And the Bible says that when he was in torment, he turned to the Lord his God, and God heard him, restored him to his kingdom, and he went back to Jerusalem. He tried to undo all the evil he had done in the, in the early days of his life. And it uses a term in the Old Testament that says he was converted because it says Manasseh knew the Lord, he was God. Isn't that wonderful? So I don't want anybody here to go around listening to the devil saying, you've done that, you've done that. Because if you had done that, you probably wouldn't be here. But still, I want to warn you, it's possible. If you start neglecting your relationship with Jesus Christ, and if you don't do what it says in Hebrews chapter 3, hang on to the beginning of your confidence and you hang on it clear to the end, you don't let anything take it away, you'll be a partaker of Christ. Now... There's one more text. I've got to get to it real quick. This is found in 2 Peter, and it's chapter 2, and it's about the last four verses. And these are sad. I wish they weren't in the Bible. They're here. I've got to read them to you. Let's start in verse 19 of 2 Peter chapter 2. And it's talking about people that promise you liberty. And you say, you don't need to be obedient to God. You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith. Is that true? But does Satan take the truth of God? And even when Satan says the truth, he's still lying. Am I right? Because he will twist it in such a way. And in verse 19, it's talking about those who are teaching, say, doesn't make any difference what you do. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. Now notice verse 20, 21, and 22. This is talking about the same thing. It's three times in the Bible that's saying, if you know God, hang on to God. Keep rejoicing in God, because it is possible to turn your back on God. Lucifer did. And here's what it says, starting in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you can't escape the pollutions of the world unless you give yourself to God. Amen? But after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through Jesus, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than at the beginning. For it had been better for them not to know the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog has returned his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now I've shown you these three places where the Bible says if you neglect your relationship with Christ and you turn and walk away, the Holy Spirit will come after you and come after you and come after you and come after you and like Manasseh came after him year after year after year. But if you stay, keep rejecting God, you can come to the place where you can do to yourself what Lucifer did to himself so that you have lost the desire and you start to hate God. Now, how many like to hear the antidote to this terrible disease? I'm going to give it to you. It's back in Hebrews because wherever you find something awful, you will find the antidote to whatever is awful there. How many like that? So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10 that talks about this. And, of course, the bad news in verse 26. So let's go back to verse 20. And there are four things that Paul says, do this. And if you do this, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. So verse 20, let us draw near, obviously to God, with a what kind of a heart? A true heart. Now, how do you get a true heart? Because the Bible says the heart of man, the mind of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? How do you get a true heart? You come to Jesus. 
Create me a clean heart, O God. Psalms 51, verse 10. I'd like to sing it, but I'm running out of time. But that's a song. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in thee. How do you get a true heart? You come to God. You beg Him. You recognize that you need a true heart. How do you know if you need a true heart? Well, if you need to keep having your heart shake, you know, we sang Jesus is coming again. And when you sing Jesus is coming again, there's something inside you that says, I better get ready. Is that good? Yes. But Jesus doesn't want us all the time thinking, I got to get ready. He wants us to be ready. And when we are ready, if, if you need to get ready, you need a new heart. I'm talking, I got a sermon called Pacemaker Religion. I haven't preached it yet. But what Pacemaker Religion is, is you need to keep having your heart shocked in order to keep it beating. If you need a pacemaker, you need a new heart. Because God wants us to come to a place where we don't need to be frightened into doing what's right. We do what's right because we love God. Amen? Now, if you need to be frightened, I have some frightening sermons. I just preached one. But I want you to move beyond the kind of religion that you need to be frightened until you're serving God out of abject gratitude. Look what Jesus has done for me. And this is what it says. Let us draw near with a heart that's been changed by Jesus, a new heart, in what kind of faith? What kind of faith? Full assurance of faith. What's full assurance of faith? Well, the way to define what full assurance of faith is, I will tell you what partial assurance of faith. How many know what partial assurance of faith is? I'm going to tell you what partial assurance of faith is. I have cancer, but I believe Jesus is going to cure me. Does that sound like I have faith? But it's partial assurance. I'm having financial problems, but I know that Jesus is going to bless me. That's not full assurance of faith. That's partial assurance. Uh, I've got to have my gallbladder taken out, but it's going to be okay because I know Jesus is going to be with me. It's going to be okay. Do all Christians who have cancer get cured of cancer? Do all Christians who have a gallbladder operation that solve their problem? Do all Christians have financial security? Well, yes, but but there are Christians who are poor. Am I right? Let me tell you what full assurance of faith is. I don't know whether God's going to cure me of cancer or not. He can if He wants to, if He can still use me. But I do know this, if he doesn't and I die, I'm trusting in Jesus and I know that when I die, the next thing I will know is Jesus will be here, it's time to go home and I won't have cancer anymore. I think of John the Baptist. Did John the Baptist have full assurance of faith? Well, it wavered a little bit because he thought, is it really him? But here's John the Baptist in jail. And how many think if you're John the Baptist and you're the forerunner of Christ and you're Jesus' cousin through Mary and Elizabeth, how many think that Jesus should come and get him out of jail? Did Jesus get other people out of jail? He got Peter out of jail, am I right? Did he get John the Baptist out of jail? Did John the Baptist's followers think Jesus should get him out of jail? Did Jesus' own disciples think Jesus should get him out of jail? Yeah, probably. How many think Jesus could have got John the Baptist out of jail? Partial assurance of faith says, he'll get me out of jail. Full assurance of faith says, if he doesn't get out of jail and they execute me and cut off my head, it's still okay. Because John the Baptist had his head cut off and he lost consciousness right then. And the next thing that John the Baptist will know, it's resurrection morning, his head's back on his head, he has a new body and he's going to heaven. Is that good or bad? Do you know what full assurance of faith is? I don't know what's going to happen in this life. I don't know whether I'm going to be in an accident today. I pray that God will watch over me. But if I have done the work that God wants me to do, that like John the Baptist had done the work that God had got him to do, and he wants me to die today, that's okay because I'll go to sleep. And the next thing I know, Jesus be your time to go to heaven. Is that good news? Is that full assurance of faith? Full assurance of... I know some people who've given up their faith in God because they thought God was going to take care of all these things. God does not promise 
that everything is going to be all right in this life. But he can tell you one thing for sure. It's his will. John 6, 38, 39, 40. It says, this is my Father's will that all that have come to me, I will raise them up in the last day and they will have everlasting life. That's what God's will is. And I want you to have full assurance of faith. And when I go to the hospital and I pray for somebody and I anoint them like I did this last week to someone, I want them to know. When Jesus was on the cross, when he was in the garden before he went on the cross, he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. How many of you ever prayed a prayer like that? You're going to them, let the, but if not, not my will, but thy will be done. And in Jesus' case, it was the Father's will for him to go to the cross. And apparently it was the Father's will for John the Baptist to have his head well, I don't know if his father's will, but he permitted it anyway. If you want to avoid falling into willful sin, you need to come to Jesus, have a true heart, and then you need to keep rejoicing like the people on the way to Egypt should have, re- on the way to the promised land should have been rejoicing. And your full assurance of faith says it's okay. Doesn't matter what's happened, it's okay because Jesus said to the thief, you'll be with me in paradise, and he said it to me. So everything else is okay. And if you say, how are you today? I say, Thank God I'm not being treated the way I deserve because I should have been crucified. And if you say, God bless me, I'll say, if God doesn't bless me, it won't be his fault because he's sure trying. And when you say, have a good day, what will I say back to you? Have a good eternity because if you know you're going to have a good eternity, it doesn't make any sense whether you have a bad day or a good day or not because it's going to be okay. And you can look at the bad day and say, so what? I have full assurance of faith and it's going to be okay. Let me hear you say that. It's going to be okay. All right? That's how you... Resist this willful sin. Let me read on. Full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. Now, let me describe what an evil conscience is, and I've got to hurry. There's two kinds of evil conscience. The most common kind of evil conscience is the conscience in which you're doing wrong, and the conscience says, oh, that's not so bad. And I have actually heard church members say that to somebody else who's done something because they're trying to be nice to them. And they're feeling bad about something they've done, and they say, well, that's not so bad. Don't ever say that. Just taking a bite of, out of a piece of an apple that God had said was not okay. And I don't want you to ever say to anybody when, they have, when they're telling you something, a mistake they made, I don't want you to tell them, well, that's not so bad. I don't want you to tell them, okay, am I all right? Am I made anybody mad yet? When you sinned, what do you do to get it taken care of? You take it to Jesus and you say, Lord, I have sinned against you. And what I've done is wrong. And I want to be forgiven and I want to be cleansed. But don't tell people that sin, even a little sin is okay because it's not. Because a little sin leads to a middle-sized sin which will eventually lead to a big sin. Amen? And no sin is okay. All sin is bad. All sin can kill you, can't it? And if you have ever, ever, ever said to anybody, don't worry about it, it's okay. I want you to go to them and ask their forgiveness for leading them in the wrong way because sin is not okay. And how many agree with me that an evil conscience is any kind of conscience that will disobey God and not feel bad about it? Amen? I want people to feel bad about sins. I want you to feel so bad that it drives you to Jesus. Amen? That's what what conviction of sin should do. And the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. And then somebody comes along and says, and that's what the devil does, doesn't it? That's not so bad. But there is a more subtle kind of evil conscience. How many want me to tell you the more subtle kind? More subtle kind of evil conscience talks about in this book, Steps to Christ. And it says, many, many who are really conscientious and who really desires to live, to live for God, Satan gets them to dwell on their mistakes and their failures, and he gets them to moaning over their failures, and then they give up. 
So the other kind of evil conscience, the more subtle kind of evil conscience, is the evil conscience says, you are terrible. You are so bad. Why don't you just give up? Judas had that evil conscience. I believe that when Peter cussed and swore, he felt bad, but he came to Jesus, right? He looked at Jesus and he was forgiven. There's something in my heart that says, had Judas come to the cross and begged for mercy, I believe that if Judas had had the capacity to ask forgiveness, Jesus would have still had the capacity to forgive. So the subtle kind of evil conscience, the kind of evil conscience that Satan is going to use on you people is the evil conscience that says, you've gone too far, you're too bad, you're so weak, you're no good. How many the devil ever does that to you? You might just as well give up. That's an evil conscience too, amen? So the way to avoid willful sin is to ask Jesus to change your heart, keep rejoicing in full assurance of faith, don't excuse your sins, but don't moan over them, confess them to God, and then believe that he has forgiven you. And then go on. Doesn't he say your sins and iniquities I will remember? No more. So if you remember them some more, who's reminding you of them? Satan. He wants you to think about sin. He doesn't care why you think about or how you think about sin, whether it's somebody else's sin or your sin, as long as you're thinking about sin. Amen? So when Satan tells you you're a great sinner, agree with him. You're right, but I have a great Savior, and I've accepted him, and he is my Savior. And when Satan comes and reminds you of your past, remind him of his future and tell him to get out of your face. I'm going to think about Jesus. I'm not going to think about my past and my sins. I've confessed them to Jesus. He has forgiven me. He's given me the gift of eternal life. And I, he, he says he'll not only forgive, but he says that he will cleanse me. And he's in the process of cleansing me right now. Amen? All right. Let us draw near the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. Amen? Then verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. What's the profession of our faith? I'm a sinner, but Jesus came and he saved me. He died in my place. That's the profession of our faith. Hold on to that profession of faith without wavering. Why? I may not be faithful, but the one who gave the promise is faithful, and I'm going to keep looking at his promises. Amen? And then the last verse, well, not the last, but verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Now, in our society, we think of provoke as usually making somebody mad. How many know you can make somebody mad, and, then, and if they're not close to God, you can make them mad, and then they'll do something, which is usually not very good, right? But in the old English, provoke had, had two terms. You can cause people by doing something nice. You can cause them to want to do something nice. How many of you ever had something nice, somebody do something nice for you? You know, somebody comes along, your tire's flat, and I've had this happen to me. I don't have the right equipment. I didn't know I didn't have the right equipment, but I'd bought a used car down in Texas, and I didn't know it, and I had a flat tire, and all the stuff wasn't there that I needed. And somebody came along and says, well, I've got what you need. How many make, that made me want to help somebody else later, right? And so what the Bible says, if you want to keep someone else from committing willful sin, go around doing nice things for people, trying to figure out what can I do today to help make somebody happy. How many have done that? What can I do today to make somebody happy? I heard a song, make someone happy, make just one someone happy, and you'll be happy too, right? And this is what it says. If you don't want to commit willful sin, go around doing nice things for people. And if you want to keep other people who are on their way to commit willful sin, provoke them with good things, with good deeds and love and kindness. And didn't I preach a sermon several weeks ago or several months ago called, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it, Thoughtless Acts of Kindness. Didn't I preach something like that? 
Just, just, look, just look for little things. What can I do to make somebody happy? The Bible says to do that. And it'll help you and it'll help them. Now, the last text here is verse 25. This is the preacher's commercial. Take it out and call people. Forsake not the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Come to church. Study your Sabbath school lesson. Sit in Sabbath school class. Listen to the sermon. Because if you don't, you could fall into willful sin. How many can see that? Now, it's after 12, so there's the same antidote that's in Hebrews 10 is also in Hebrews 6. I want you to go back and read that for yourself. And one of these days, I will, after you've kind of forgotten this sermon, I will come back and I will finish this sermon by preaching to you out of Hebrews 6. Because there's a whole sermon in Hebrews 6. But what you find in Hebrews 6 is what you find in Hebrews 10. It's possible to turn your back on God and go away. But after it taught, in this case, it tells you what to do before willful sin. In Hebrews 6, it tells the willful sin, and then it tells you here's how you avoid it. Go back and read Hebrews 6. Read it through 20 times this afternoon. And you can come to me, and you can preach that sermon. Right? But you see, what I've told you is it's possible to go away from God. But the title of the sermon says, How to Hang On When You Feel Like Letting Go. What do you do to hang on when you feel like letting go? You keep remembering what Jesus did, and you say, I still want that. And praise the Lord, if you let go of him, he's going to still come grabbing after you. Amen? Dear Jesus, thank you for the message of this song, that when we let go of you, you don't let go of us. And like it says in Genesis 4, when Adam and Eve had sinned, then they were afraid and they ran away and they hid themselves in the garden. And the Bible says, you came calling, Adam, Adam, Eve, where are you? Help us to hear your Holy Spirit calling to us, wanting us, loving us, wanting to restore us to your favor. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Help us to encourage one another. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.